This um, uh, is, I think, one of three times that uh, uh, you have had on prayer. And um, I remember uh, three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, uh, speaking to you about prayer, and then I understand that Johannes has spoken about prayer uh, last uh, Wednesday. And I would like to turn you to Ephesians again, and chapter 6. And from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore take up the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace with all taking up the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God with all prayer and supplication praying at all seasons in the Spirit and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and on my behalf, that utterance may be given unto me, and opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly, as I ought to speak. And then, if you will turn to Matthew, and to chapter uh, 18, and verses 19 and 20, Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, Again, I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth, as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And then, again in the same Gospel, chapter 6, verse 5, chapter 6 of this same Gospel of Matthew, chapter, verse 5, And when ye pray, ye shall not be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be of men. Verily I say unto you, they have received their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thine inner chamber, and having shut thy door, pray to thy Father who is in secret. And thy Father who seeth in secret shall recompense thee. And in praying, use not vain repetitions as the Gentiles do, 
for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like unto them, for your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I would like uh, this evening just to um, say perhaps uh, uh, some more practical uh, things about uh, prayer. I think on our first uh, evening together, I, I, I sought to underline one simple, but I think all-important fact. This world is a substantially and essentially spiritual world. We tend to think of it as a world that is only physical and that there is a spiritual world coming. But there are thrones visible and invisible. There are principalities visible and invisible. There are world rulers visible and invisible. There are evil men entirely visible. There are demonic beings or spirits that are invisible, but nonetheless real. It is only when the people of God wake up to this very simple but all-important fact that this world is basically a spiritual world. In fact, the things which we cannot see are the most important things. They are, for the most part, the eternal things. But we are creatures of time and sense. And uh, very sadly, when we're saved, we remain creatures of time and sense. Whereas those who are redeemed of the Lord are the only people in the whole world that are at one and the same time on earth and yet in heavenly places in Christ. They are actually um, as it were uh, occupying a place in the heavenlies in the Lord Jesus joined to him as head one with him as body to head um, they occupy a unique position. No other grouping, no other order of human beings um, occupies the position that the church occupies on this earth. We are both at one and the same time in the world, but not of the world. On earth, but in heavenly places living a physical life, located in physical bodies, and yet worshipping in spirit and in truth. 
It is a tremendously important fact. And it's only when people begin to see these things that they wake up. Now, in many ways, of course, this is the characteristic of the new covenant and the age in which we are now found. But it would be a, a, a complete and total mistake to think that the, under the old covenant, everything was physical. It was not. Isaiah's whole ministry began by seeing a world that he could not see with physical sight. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You can't see the Lord with these physical eyes in that way, but Isaiah saw him with the eyes of his heart. He suddenly saw what in fact was true. The Lord was high and lifted up, and his train did fill the temple. It wasn't a make-believe picture that God danced before the eyes of his servant Isaiah. It was a window into what was actually the fact in the year that King Isaiah died. In all that time of uncertainty and the possibility of, e of an evil king taking over or something along that line of possible change in direction in the kingdom, God opened the window for Isaiah and he saw what was the real truth, the real fact about everything. Elisha, um, his whole ministry was spent in the physical and yet he operated in the spiritual. <laughs> the king of Syria got so fed up with Elisha that he thought his uh, bedchamber was up. Because he said, I whisper things in my bedchamber and somehow or other Elisha hears them and utters them. Now how in the world? Did Elisha get to know what the king of Syria was saying in his bedchamber? Even more interestingly, uh, Elisha's servant was like most of us, a child of God, devoted, a servant of the Lord, seeking to serve God, seeking to have an input into the purpose of God, but he was his whole horizon was bound, inhibited by what he saw. Now, so many of us who are children of God are just like this. We're saying we're born of God, but our whole horizon is a matter of time and sense. The things we feel, the things we see, the things we hear, the things we touch, the things we taste, these are the things that are the realities to us. When these two, representing on the one side a man whose eyes were opened to a spiritual world and a child of God whose eyes were not opened to the spiritual world, sought to operate together in the fulfillment of the purpose of God, Gehazi came unstuck. <laughs> and this is what happens to us. You see, we come into a time of prayer and virtually we come unstuck. We honestly don't know how to operate in the time of prayer. Because 
we are operating in that time of prayer as if only the things of time and sense influence our way and so on. I mean, no one's ever going to pray with fervor. Nobody's ever going to spend time in importunate prayer. Nobody's going to go right through not leaving a matter until it is finally done unless they see through to the unseen, unless they have an understanding of the purpose of God, and unless they have an understanding of the spiritual forces that are arrayed against them, that are going to undo the fulfilment of that purpose. Otherwise, we come into the time and we just sort of sit there, and we sort of nod, if we can keep awake, and we hear one prayer, we hear another prayer, and then another prayer is a little better when we say Amen. And then we drop off again, and our, our prayer time is just a matter of petition. And it's very generalized. We can't be specific because we don't see anything. How can you be specific if you don't see anything? All you can pray is, Lord, bless America. In other words, it is the most, if you don't give anything away, nobody can say you're being unspiritual. You see, I mean, bless America. It's up to the Lord to work that one out. You're, you're, you're not, you're not burning any bridges behind you. You're not, you're not committing yourself in any way at all. It is the most generalized prayer. Jesus actually said in one place, you have not because you ask not. James also said the same thing. You see, this, unless you're specific, you, you don't get anywhere in prayer. But to be specific, you have to have vision. And the vision we need is to, to see through to the things which are invisible. To the facts which actually are the determining factor. For instance, for me, this evening, the determining factor of everything in this little gathering about is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not that he might become Lord. Not that if we are good enough, he may exercise his lordship. Not if we all fall on our flat faces flat and cry and scream for a few hours, he will then start to exercise his authority. No, Jesus is Lord whether we're dead or alive, whether we're asleep or awake. Jesus is Lord. That is a fact to me. That is a bigger fact than you sitting in these chairs. <laughs> you sitting in these chairs is just a matter of moments if I only shut up in time. I mean, you are only going to sit there for a certain limited span of time. That, that's nothing. What does that mean? But, the, but Jesus being Lord tonight is a fact which determines everything that's happened since the ascension. He has been, into his hands have been given all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. And he is ruling until his enemies be made his footstool. This is the fact, whether we have Mao Zedong's or Stalin's or Adolf Hitler's or Mussolini's or whether we have Gorbachev's or Assad's or Khomeini's or Chermondang's or all the others, it makes absolutely no difference at all. The Lord Jesus is on the throne. He's not even fighting. He's seated until his enemies be made the footstool. That is a fact. There are other facts too. This is why John, the apostle, said, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son 
We overcome because we see that Jesus is the Son of God. And that he has, his sonship has been vindicated. His messiahship, his messianic kingship has been, has been vindicated. His finished work has been sealed and confirmed by his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Now, can you see that? Can you touch it with these hands? Can you taste it with these lips? Can you see it with these eyes? Can you hear it with these ears? No. But it is the fact in this world today. That's what I mean about seeing. Now, you have Elisha, you have Gehazi. Both of them are, are servants of God. One may have greater authority than the other, but in their own way, both are necessary. Someone had to cook uh, Elisha's breakfast. Someone had to run around the man of God, who was probably pretty dozy at times, in certain areas. Gehazi had a very real job to do, and he was very necessary in the fulfillment of Elisha's ministry. But there was one who saw things invisible, and one who didn't see things invisible. And when the king of Syria decided to um, sever the bugging devices that were getting him down, and make a foray into Israel, and encircle the prophet in the place where he was staying, in the, the mountain where he was living, and finally finished the old prophet once, and for all, and the danger he felt there was to his intelligence uh, service, the, the difference between these two servants of God, these two children of God, these two saved people, became apparent. Gehazi looked out and saw all the Syrian army taking up positions. He looked out of one window, I suppose, facing one direction into his power. He saw them all taking up positions. He ran to the other window at the other end, looked down, saw they were taking up positions in that direction too. He ran to the other, and they were taking up positions. It was too much for him. Whether he stole out the back door up to the top of the hill and looked down and saw they were coming round the back as well, I don't know. But it was too much for He thought, my goodness me, Elisha doesn't know this. We're finished. We're finished. The enemy has mounted an operation. He's going to finish it off altogether. And finally he got hold of Elisha. I don't know what Elisha was doing. If we're very spiritual, we can imagine that he was at prayer. But I sometimes think perhaps he was eating his breakfast or something like that. You know, Christ, in one sense, very unspiritual. And uh, the rushed in and said to, to uh, Elisha, uh, Master, we're finished. We're surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha just looked at him and opened his mouth and said, Lord, open his eyes. And God opened Gehazi's eyes. Now, he was precisely the same. In that moment of time, he was still the same stature, still the same form, still the same color to his eyes. Still the same colour to his hair. Not a single thing changed about the house. And yet, when God opened his eyes, he became a different man. For in that single moment, he saw 
that all round the mountain stationed in every conceivable nook and cranny were the hosts of God. And he suddenly realized there are more that be with us than that be with them. Then the funny thing was, was one hour before, it, there's nothing has changed. Do you mean to tell me that suddenly, because Gehazi had his eyes open, God said, Oh, quick, move down there. Move, move down. Take your positions, all of you. Straight away, the man's eyes will open. <laughs> no, there was no difference at all. The, the whole host of heaven were in their position. It was just the trouble was, Gehazi didn't see Elisha so Elisha knew very well that either his time for martyrdom had come, or the Lord was going to teach the king of Syria a very big lesson. And as it was, the Lord was going to teach the king of Syria a very big lesson. Now, dear brothers and sisters, this is our whole problem over prayer. We are like so many Gehazis trying to sort of engage in prayer. We love the Lord, we're saved. We really want to see the purpose of God fulfilled in this area. We want to see the body of Christ functioning. We want to see the church of God built up. We want to see people saved. We want to see the Lord manifesting himself in the expressing his love and his grace and his power and his mercy and his righteousness and truth. We want to see all these things. But our problem is that there are enemies all kinds of enemies. Many of these enemies we can see. Worldliness, affluence, prosperity, blindness of society, and a thousand and one other kinds of things. We see them all around us. And the trouble is, we feel, the, we feel these things are sufficiently strong to frustrate any purpose of God. If we don't see that if the Lord has brought us together, and the Lord has given us vision. The Lord intends to fulfill his purpose in and through us. We shall never, in the end, see the fulfillment of the purpose of God. We need our eyes open. So really, that first thing, we spent some time talking about um, this matter of really seeing. I mean, we see it all the way through the Old Testament. Daniel had that amazing experience um, when he began to pray. I don't doubt for a moment that Daniel uh, had no idea of that unseen world. He had a burden. And this is what so often happens with us. We don't want to become sort of uh, uh, spirit, uh, spirit-centered, you know, a sort of demon-conscious, or sort of um, Satan-conscious uh, all the time, finding every single thing, Satan, 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 demon, 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 spirit, spirit, spirit. I mean, it's unhealthy. We want to become Christ-centered, Christ-conscious. But this doesn't mean that we don't see these spiritual forces. And, and the wonderful thing is that so often God, in order that we do not become Satan-conscious, actually just directs us into really burdened prayer. And we have no idea the forces we unleash. 
When we begin to pray as seeing him who is Lord and head over all things of the church, when we begin to pray as joined to him, when we begin together to pray through a matter, we have no idea the forces we unleash in the unseen world. This is what is meant in, in Ephesians chapter 3 where it says that now to the intent that unto principalities and powers through the church might be made known the manifold wisdom of God. It is through the church functioning in action, in joined to its head, exercising the authority of the head, that in fact all these principalities and powers, this unseen world, is being instructed. So uh, I, I believe that this matter, as I said that evening, is a strategic matter. It's not. It's not just important. It is strategic. Because um, we must be pathetically blind and I would say to the point of being foolish if we think the church of God is going to be built here without opposition. If you think that the gates of hell are not going to take note of any forward advance, any uh, move of any kind into a fulfillment of God's purpose for his people here or elsewhere, we must be very blind. We have been catapulted by our new birth into a conflict which began before times eternal. Actually, it has nothing in one sense to do with us. We are small fry. I mean, as far as Satan is concerned, he could blow at us all and we'd all be flat on our backs. But we are saved. We have been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that's why he hates us. Because the transference of our allegiance and of our, of our uh, position, of our status, and into uh, 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 the kingdom of God's Son means that Satan sees us as a bell tolling out his end. And he'll do anything to destroy us for that reason. He knows perhaps better than anybody that when the bride starts to make herself ready, the coming of the Lord is very near. So we have to expect that if we are people who have begun to understand something about the purpose of God and the church of God and the ways of God, then uh, we're going to have a tremendous amount of opposition. And uh, the marvelous thing is Paul says in this Ephesian letter, all we have to do is stand. We don't have to retreat. We don't have to take shelter underground. We don't have to try to ascend. We don't have to go either to the left or to the right. And we don't even have to go forward. All we have to do is stand. Now this is very interesting. What does it mean? Elsewhere it tells us we have to walk by faith. Elsewhere we're told that we shall run in a race. <laughs> so why does it say in this battle concerning the purpose of God, stand? Because, first of all, the battle is already won. And all we really have to do is stand together and declare the fact that the battle is won. 
and that God is going to have his way. That's a very important thing. There are wiles of the devil. We stand against them. There is an evil day. We withstand in the evil day. And when we've done everything, we stand. But where do we stand? Good point. Where do we stand? We stand in Christ. We very often hear messages on this Ephesians 6 that are entirely personal. As if we are, it's a, a, just and only a personal matter of putting on the armour. I have no doubt that every one of us has to put on the armour to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. But it is interesting that in this Ephesians chapter 6, it is to the church that the Apostle is speaking. And he is saying, if you're going to see this, the fulfilment of all that I have sought to communicate to you by the Spirit of God in these previous five chapters of this letter, you are going to have to put on Christ as armour. You have to put on the whole armour of God. So, how do we come into a time of prayer? If we come into a time of prayer half asleep, you cannot blame the leadership, you cannot blame cer the circumstances or anybody else um, within that prayer time for the sleepiness. If you come in sleepy, you can rest assured that about 70% of the rest have also come in the same condition. As I've said again and again, it is an interesting fact that whatever day you choose to have a prayer time on will be the day that you will all find the most tiring day of the week. Now, we have tried to outwit the enemy uh, at times because we thought it may not be a fleshly matter. We, we took it from a Monday evening because everybody said Monday evening was over. They were so weary and so tired. They said, we, just, we can hardly drag ourselves to the time of prayer. But everybody was conscious that prayer was important and they had a responsibility. So we said, well, maybe it's Monday, first day of the week, you see, and everybody after the weekend, although refreshed, find it very tiring to have to gear themselves up again to the routine of the week. So we said, we'll move it from Monday to Tuesday. And within a month, Tuesday had become the day everybody was most tired of. <laughs> that is very interesting. I've been other places where it's happened on Wednesday and they find that Wednesday is the time everybody. They say, well, it's the middle of the week, you see. Middle of the week, see. They're very tired in the middle of the week. You get, you get a second wind after Wednesday night to carry you through the rest of the week. But Wednesday's a dreadful time for this. Count me out. I'm afraid I get so tired on Wednesdays. Then other people say, I've known groups that have had a prayer time on Friday because they wanted to prepare, as it were, the weekend in prayer. And I found that they all said, oh, Friday's the most terrible night in the week. I mean, we're all worn out on Friday. I mean, the house have been rushing around trying to do various things and... And uh, the kids come back from school and they're ready for the weekend, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's a tiring thing and everyone's got their psychological letdown. It's the end of the week. <sighs> you know, you sort of... Um... But in actual fact, it doesn't matter if you have a prayer time, I guarantee, on any one of the seven days of the week. You will discover within a very short time that is the day that you are most tired where everything will go wrong, where every conceivable possibility that would deter you or give you a good excuse for not coming to the prayer time will happen. It's interesting, isn't it? So if we had come into a time like this, 
sort of carried half in, if you know what I mean, uh, spiritually on stretchers or come in on crutches, you know, sort of to sit in the chair and, and let the rest sort of take part. But thank God I've done my duty, I'm here. The fact of the matter is the time is a sleepy time. There are no joints of supply in this matter. They're all blocked. You see, we all think we're in a war. But we all believe the war is, a, is, a, is an idealistic picture, an imaginative picture. Can you imagine what it would be like if the enemy was ranged in these trees with guns that you couldn't see, would you sort of come in and go <sighs> and just sit down there waiting to be shot like a sitting duck? I would imagine that if you thought that in these trees there were enemies with guns trained upon us here, you might think, well, the best thing is to take cover and to arm ourselves so that we perhaps can pick them off before they pick us off. But you see, if you don't see a time of prayer as a, as a warfare, or as a wrestling with these invisible parts, nobody's going to come into the time prepared. What we all do is this. We come to the time, and during the course of the time, we prepare ourselves. Which means that one hour and a half after the time has begun, we are just about ready. In other words, we have spent a whole time getting sorted out, geared up, and sort of ready for the battle. And then someone says, well, brothers and sisters, we'll see you on Sunday morning. And we all go out the door. Well, we feel better for it because we've actually got prepared and sorted out. But, you see, it's a tragedy. It's a terrible non-redeeming of the time. We have spent the whole time getting right. Sometimes we have thoughts that have troubled us. Sometimes we've had battles with other people that are still troubling us. Sometimes we have an unforgiving spirit that's following us. Sometimes we have a bitterness that's there. Sometimes we've got some kind of thing in the household that's getting us down or business that's getting us down. Instead of getting here just a moment or two, bowing one's head and getting all these things put away and under the blood of the Lamb and being able in a spirit of determination to say, Now, Lord... I'm, I'm in Christ and I'm here in all my problems I'm here in Christ now isn't that what the apostle said? finally be strong in the Lord not locked out apart from the Lord then some people say oh well you know you're being a bit hard on us you don't know how hard we work here in America we are a capitalist society and I mean we have to work very hard here you know they grind us in these parts and, and we just come into these times absolutely wrecked well my, my dear brothers and sisters you can don't talk to me about this just go and talk to the Lord about it because um, I think you'll have short script with him um, I think he will say to you, look here, it's perfectly uh, clear that you will be a dead duck outside of me. You will just be, if not a dead duck, a lame one. 
that you can be strong in me and in the strength of my might. And that is a position of faith. So when the enemy tries to wear us out and get us down and make us tired and overload us with things, you will find that half of it, if not two-thirds of it, if not the whole lot, will disappear with a step of faith. Because it is not real. It is here in the unseen kind of pressure on the mind. A prayer time, when it is really in the Lord, you come in tired and you go out with a spring in your step. I mean it. Oh, the times I've been in prayer times, I couldn't say that. But Lord, they'll kill me. They'll carry me out in a coffin. I feel so tired and I feel I've got a headache and I've got this and I've got that and got the other. But I thought, no, now, Lord, this is too important. This is the enemy. And I just sat and I said, Lord, you're going to be my strength in this time. You're going to be my power. And when, I don't know what's happened, but when I go out, no headache, nothing else. I feel as if we could do two or three hours of work. That's what happens when the Lord really comes in. It's so thrilling that it actually renews you and revives you. Now, if we came in for this time like that, each time we come, right from the beginning, came in as marshals for war, under the captain of the Lord's host, putting on the whole armour of God, I think we would begin very quickly to see a difference in the atmosphere. Now, will you please notice that uh, this kind of a prayer is a tackling of the sources of opposition. Now, I don't mean by this that every single moment we have to be binding the devil or um, naming uh, these uh, forces, but I, I want you to note that this word the Apostle uses, we wrestle against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rules, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavens. We wrestle. It, it means that prayer is not just a time of petition. That's not wrestling. I mean, of course, petition is, is in, in a time of prayer. But, but this kind of prayer goes beyond petition. That's why the Apostle speaks of supplication and prayer in the Spirit. Because supplication is beseeching of the Lord, inquiry of the Lord, entreating of the Lord. We don't know how to pray as we ought, so we supplicate the Lord as to what way He would direct us. But when we know how He would have us deal with this matter, or what the facts are of this matter, then we can start to take it up in prayer. And then it has to be importunate prayer. The kind of prayer the Lord Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. The kind of prayer that James spoke of as the fervent, right, uh, the, the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man. Some of us are by nature phlegmatic, and we must remain that way, because if by nature we are that way, then it's best to remain that way. But we mustn't copy one another in this matter. There is nothing so warming, so inspiring as a fervent prayer. 
I don't know what it is amongst some of the Lord's people. They feel that it's not spiritual to get fervent. The word in Greek is white hot. But some people go, oh, no, 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 no. No, I don't mean getting so excited that you, you can't get the words out of you. know, you're not a, um, I don't mean anything like that. But I know that there are times when between some people's words in prayer, I could take the dog round the block for a walk. <laughs> now, thank God if that's them. But if it becomes a common habit of everybody, how in the world is the time to be normal? Because we don't talk like that. I have just come from down south, in the deep south, and I must say, I've never heard anything like it. I mean, I sometimes can write a letter between two of their statements. I mean, I personally love it, because I'm rather faster uh, by nature, so I find opposite to that. I rather enjoy it. But, if everybody sort of played like that, I would find it very hard to feel that we were getting anywhere. I would think, oh, I want to sort of dynamite them all or do something with them, get them into it, get them on with it. Well, thank God Elijah was very different. Of course, I imagine Elijah like that. A man who can run 20 miles at his age and outdistance uh, Ahaz's royal chariot and horses for some man. I, I doubt very much that he was too slow. I, I imagine he was quite a voluble kind of person. By nature. Fervent, effectual prayer. Don't be afraid of being fervent. Don't be afraid of even being quick if that's your nature. God sorts it all out. But, you see, the main thing really is that a time of prayer is not just a devotional exercise, period. A kind of responsibility or duty discharged. So we all come in and we say, Oh, Lord, touch so-and-so who's ill, and then someone else says, Lord, we've got some problem, problems with the young people. Save them. <laughs> and then someone else says, Lord, those hostages are going to be shot tomorrow morning. If it's at all possible. Preserve them. I mean, you'll ask you, but we are not tackling anything. The whole object of real prayer is to go beyond supplication to intercession. In other words, prayer is an iceberg, and so is the corporate prayer time. It is an iceberg. All that is seen here is but 10% of what is out of out of these doors with burdens. They have been kindled in the time, inspired in the time, developed in the time. They go out, their private times of prayer are revolutionized by our corporate time of prayer. 
because they have got direction as to how to play over certain things. They're not going to try and tackle big things on their own, but they're going to go on holding that matter before the Lord. When we come back together again, if the Holy Spirit directs, we take it up again. And in the end, we see God answer prayer. We used to keep a book uh, years ago uh, in Richmond, Surrey, in England, in the Fellowship there, because we first didn't want to find that each week we forgot the things we were praying for, as it were, as it's so, such a tendency, but we were following some things through. But the most exciting thing about that book were the answers. Because you would see some things prayed for two months, and then there would be, praise the Lord, such and such is done. Or there would be another thing that was prayed just a week, and the next week, we can praise the Lord, we've got the answer. This and this happened. You know, it was so exciting. There were some things that remained there over years and only yielded after years. But, I mean, it's so interesting when we used to look back in that prayer book because it, it, it was the spiritual history and pilgrimage of a company of God's children. It wasn't just coming together and uh, a kind of devotional exercise, as I said, or, or even uh, uh, a responsibility discharged. It was actually standing with God for things concerning his kingdom to be fulfilled on earth amongst us and through us. And we must expect that the Lord is more interested in that than we. So I believe this matter of wrestling, I won't take note of it. Because we can get an idea that in prayer we are um, politely distant from any kind of actual handling of the problem. But in prayer we come into Proximity, more than proximity. We come into contact with the problem. And as we come into grappling with the problems, we, we, we name over them the name of the Lord Jesus, and we say with our lips what is the will of God concerning that problem, and we find that God acts. That is prayer. Now, uh, time always flies when we get on a subject like this, but you see, I read to you that uh, prayer, uh, that, that uh, word of our Lord Jesus about prayer in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together, because we all know that. But the full statement is, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This kind of prayer that we have described for us in Ephesians 6, this, this standing in the will of God, uh, does mean first that, um, uh, that the, the, the risen Lord, by the person of the Holy Spirit, has harmonized us. Now, brothers and sisters, we can't just harmonize ourselves by agreeing to agree. This is a faithful mistake in some quarters. The idea is, if you and I agree to agree, it being so uniquely miraculous for two saints to agree on any given matter, that God will fall over himself to do it, whatever it is, even if it isn't his will. <laughs> I mean, the point is, so I'm told, that if you agree to agree, God says, okay, you've agreed, you have agreed, yes, all right, 
can have it. But he doesn't say that. It is verily I say unto you, if two of you shall agree on earth as touch as anything they shall ask of my Father who is, it, it shall be given them from of my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So the Lord in the midst give, of two or three believers gives rise to the agreement. This is a, a, such an exciting thing in a time of prayer, especially when we're facing very big problems, when we find, as we pray, an identity of burden. We, we are moving together. Some people say that when two people have prayed something, no, more, no one else should pray. This is legalistic. Sometimes we have a whole prayer time where we will pray on the same thing. Sometimes two or three prayer times, but we still don't have the witness we're through. But once we had that witness, we're through. Then we can start to pray as the Lord. And we don't have to take it up again. It would be unbelief to do so. This mutuality in prayer is the secret to corporate prayer. We don't need long prayer. We don't need uh, prayers loaded with tremendous biblical phraseology. You can have the sharpest, shortest prayers in the world when they're really uh, 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 harmonized by the risen Lord in our midst and they go like bullets into the target. We have made such a mess of, of our times of corporate prayer because we, we, uh, we all wander all over the place. Um, one person stands up and they pray for five things. Another person stands up and prays for three things. Someone stands up and prays for seven things. Then someone else departs altogether from anything that's been prayed for and prays for three totally different things. And then someone else prays going back to the original for the seven and the last three matters. So we've got ten in that one. I mean, you no wonder the time is heavy. Uh, the Lord Jesus said, don't use vain repetition as the Gentiles do. But pray specifically. What an amazing pattern prayer our Lord gave us. Do you know a child can understand it? Staccato almost. To the point. Nothing sort of generalized. Our Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is not a single phrase, perhaps apart from the word hallowed be thy name, which some may not quite understand. But apart from that, I would think most children could grasp, basically, this kind of prayer. We're not wandering through half of Obadiah to say, give us our daily bread. 
We're not going right through the Red Sea across the wilderness and over through Jordan into the promised land to say, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. We don't even have to give a paraphrase of one and two chronicles to say, thy will be done as in heaven so on earth. We're able to get to the point to be specific and to be together. Well, dear brothers and sisters, I really believe that this matter of prayer is tremendous. Once we learn some of these very simple lessons of prayer, um, there's no, nothing that can stop the purpose of God being fulfilled. You see, <clears throat> basically, there are two things expressed by real prayer apart from our being saved. One is the Holy Spirit is the key, the beginning, the power, and the, the, the sort of a fulfillment of real prayer. Apart from the person of the Holy Spirit, there is no prayer. That's why it says pray in the Spirit. Not meaning that we just pray in a tongue. That is praying with the Spirit. Of course, praying in the Spirit includes praying in tongues. But praying in the Spirit means something much more than only praying in a tongue. It means that we pray in the sphere of the Holy Spirit under the direction of the Holy Spirit, through the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, by the development of the Holy Spirit. That's how we pray in the Spirit. This finds us out. We can talk about the Holy Spirit till we're blue in the face, but prayer is the key. When people are praying together, praying harmonized, moving ahead from mere petition to an understanding of what the will of God is, standing with God for the fulfillment of it, standing against the forces that would frustrate the Lord, standing with the Lord for the, un, uh, uh, the loosing or unleashing of resurrection life and power, the, the ability for the purpose of God to be fulfilled. It is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. No other way for us to be practically, relevantly, realistically linked to our head in heaven than by the person of the Holy Spirit. No other way. Knowledge of doctrine won't do it. Knowledge of uh, truths as such, such as the purpose of God or even the nature of the church or, or understanding of the times in which we live, won't do it. Only the Holy Spirit. Now the second thing that comes out in prayer is whether we know what it is to be crucified with Christ. When a group of people harmonize together, flow together, are corrected by the Spirit of God, disciplined, as it were, by the Holy Spirit in one another. It is the cross. It is an evidence that we've laid down our lives. 
Much of our problem in prayer is, first of all, we have tradition, which has never gone to the cross. It is traditional for us to go all around the world. We've heard it from childhood, so that's the way we're going to do it. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether it's not biblical or not. I mean, I've been brought up that way, so... Then other people have to display their tremendous knowledge of Scripture in prayer. They'd only have to lay down their lives and all that would go to the cross. We don't have to find out that you're a walking Bible. Let the Lord know that. All we want to know is that you can get to the point in prayer. Not wade through the whole book of Jeremiah in one prayer. All you're doing is exhibiting your knowledge. All you're doing is, is treating us to amazingly flowery language. Great biblical oratory. This is the self. Sometimes long prayers are very much the same thing. Jesus put it so beautifully, people seem to think he had no humour. He said, in one thrust, they have received. Not meaning that one day they'll be in hell. <laughs> but meaning they've got exactly what they thought. People's attention. They stood on the corner. They stood up in the synagogue. And made a long prayer. And they have got their reward. Everyone said, So it has been standing there for one solid hour. <laughs> Can you believe it's piety? Isn't it marvellous? One hour on that busy corner praying away. He's got his reward. Everyone's noticed. It's not gone unnoticed. Everybody says, oh. Other people might even say, what an old hypocrite. He swindles everybody. Left, right, and said, there he is on the corner praying. But he's still got his reward. They've noticed him. He was praying there so that they would hear, they would see that he had a relationship with God. Some people use the prayer meeting for exactly that. We don't go out on street corners anymore. But we have plenty of street corners in our prayer time. People stand up and they pray so that we can all hear and think, my word, someone's got, someone's got inside. And all we want is a direct, Holy Spirit-inspired word through your mouth that will be a link in the chain of prayer. Well, I said I will close and I will close. But I would like finally to say one last word about the role of leadership in corporate prayer. The companies that we are associated with often fall into a kind of vacuum in the matter of leadership. What normally happens is this. Those who are responsible brothers don't like too quickly to pray. For they are frightened to death that they will be imposing something on the church. And we should not let leadership like that come into our meetings. We are the body. We are members of the body. So they hold back. Then the very young ones, unless they're very young in the Lord, and that can be quite refreshing. But those who are young but not so very young, they won't 
take part because they don't feel it's their place at the beginning to open their mouths. So they hold back. Then we have the sisters, all of them, young and old. They don't feel that it's right for them to pray unless one of the responsible brothers prays. And if one of the responsible brothers prays, they feel they can march in behind them. So they opt out. If we look around, we have nearly ruled everybody out. We are now all sitting in a glorious vacuum. But it leaves not the young brothers and not the responsible brothers, but the brothers who've grown up. They are not actually responsible leaders as such in the fellowship, but they are responsible men. But they feel that if the the responsible brothers, because they have gone a little further in the way of the cross, they feel if the responsible brothers don't utter a single note, I can't. Then there is a total vacuum. Except for those who have absolutely no idea about spiritual things. They will trot in with this prayer and then there will come another and then there will come another and then there will come another and the whole time will just die. This is as true of what a prayer as it is of the open time on the Lord's table. We're all sitting in the vacuum. Now, the role of leadership in prayer is all important. If everybody doesn't make themselves available to the Holy Spirit, to lead them in prayer. There can be no note sounded that witnesses in the hearts of others as being what the Lord is directing and the way he's taking us. So we wait. Half the time is spent waiting for the right note to come. Then again, I would like to say, those who are responsible brothers, leave your responsible brother uh, thing at the door. And when you come in, come in as members of the body. But come in as members of the body with obviously more maturity and more character. Be available to the Lord from the beginning. The best prayer meetings I have ever been in have been those where those brothers who are really uh, the most advanced in the company have, as it were, uh, under the Spirit of God, led in the time. And then there is a strength as if everyone can get into their position in the army and move together with the Lord. How clever the enemy is on this whole thing. We're all sitting waiting. And of course, I know this from my own experience. I used to sit in meetings thinking, well, I'm not going to. I had a pretty shrewd suspicion of what the Lord might be wanting us to, to, the note he wanted to strike, but I thought, I am not going to strike. Because they will be dependent on me. I'll keep my big mouth shut. And then a few others keep their mouth shut. And a few others. And a few others. And the great company of sisters. And we're finished. so simple. All it requires is for everybody to put outside, as it were, of heart and mind these ideas. 
and say, Lord, I'm available. In here, there's no distinction. We're here under the government of the Holy Spirit. It would be natural in an army for those who are a little older in the Lord to fire the first shot, I would have thought. A little bit odd to me, someone who's only handled the gun for a day starts firing at the enemy and we all take our cue from them. I mean, it would be so obvious to me that those who are a little older in the law will be the ones who fire the first shot. Get the Lord's mind. Go through. We're, we're going through. I do pray that these few thoughts on prayer may be a real help to you. Because we are facing more and more problems and difficulties uh, everywhere all over the world. What I believe the Holy Spirit is seeking to do is to train men and women who can be intercessors. And if he can do this with us, we're going to really, I believe, the Lord's going to teach us more in the time of prayer than in any other meeting of the church. We shall learn practically in the time of prayer more about spiritual principles, more about the Lordship of Jesus, more about the direction of the Holy Spirit, more about hearing of the, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. All these things we shall learn together. And they will be lessons well worth learning. I said I would close and I will. The point is this really, that uh, I have I often said in Richmond, Surrey, in England, that I believe that the prayer time teaches the younger ones amongst us more about how to sense what is the will of God, how to hear the Lord, how to, uh, uh, um, by faith, stand with the Lord, and how to endure and not faint until the purpose of the Lord is fulfilled. You see, when you're young in the Lord and you're on your own, you're full of fears and doubts. But when you're in a company like this, you, you quickly cotton on when you see in your older brothers and sisters how they're distinguishing the will of God. How they're hearing what the Lord's saying. How they blend together in prayer. How they complement each other. And how the Lord actually shows us things. And, and finally gives us the victory. I mean, as a youngster, you learn something about how to find the will of God for your own life through watching a company finding the will of God. You'd learn all kinds of lessons in this time of prayer about hearing the Lord and obeying the Lord and uh, enduring so that by patience as well as faith we inherit well, may the Lord help us in this matter because I believe, as I say, that it's strategic and uh, we're all learners in this school of prayer.